Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles. We are studying through the book of 2 Samuel. We're calling this the life of David, uh, which is the prominent subject in 2 Samuel especially. We find ourselves this morning at the end of chapter 12 in just a few verses, verses 24 through 31. It kind of buttons up, it finishes the story of David and Bathsheba and his sin and repentance. Finishes it in a very strong and powerful way that we need to understand uh, before we move on to see some of the consequences in David's life that he brought upon himself uh, by his sin. Uh, Specifically, the topic here is that David is invited by Joab to come out and finish the battle against the Ammonites. And so the title of our message is, Back in the Battle Again. I was going to sing it to you, but I was prompted not to. So, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do appreciate your word so much. I don't think we can really tell you how much we appreciate it, the words of life and Lord, how powerful it is and the truth that you reveal to us in it and uh, the, the pictures of Jesus that we get in your word. I pray this morning, Lord, for all of us who are gathered here for one reason or another, that we would know your purpose in bringing us here. Maybe we think we decided to come this morning, but we know you're greater than that, uh, that you brought us to this place through various means. And, and uh, Lord, I, I, realizing that, we know that you brought us here for a purpose, and that purpose is to reveal your Son, Jesus Christ, to us in a greater way. It's possible, Lord, that there's some folks here who don't know your Son, Jesus Christ. They maybe even believe in God, uh, but they've never really trusted Jesus Christ for their personal salvation. They've never understood what it means to be a sinner and why you had to die for the sins of the world. They've never personally trusted Jesus as their Savior. And so I pray, Lord, that as we talk this morning, they would get a sense of their need. We believe the Holy Spirit is here to convince them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come, and that He is perfectly capable of drawing them to you and uh, uh, bringing them to Christ. Uh, Lord, probably the majority of us, uh, obviously, are Christians. We need to be encouraged, Lord, and especially in this area of uh, restoration, whether we're involved in restoring others or whether we have been restored and don't quite feel as though we're all the way there. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, powerfully and wonderfully this morning from this episode in the life of David. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Maybe you've heard the expression, the only army that shoots its wounded is the Christian army. It means that we can have a dismissive, judgmental attitude towards a brother or sister in Christ who has sinned. Even after they repent, we can wonder if their repentance was genuine, and often we are hesitant to see them return to the full benefits of bless and blessings of the Christian life. Many of these wounded soldiers live the rest of their lives being treated or at least feeling as if they are somehow second-class believers, they've missed their one shot. Now, the classic passage on how to approach and even treat Christians who sin, it's found in the New Testament book of Galatians. It's in chapter 6, it's verse 1, where we read this. Brethren, if a man or a woman is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, which means you who are not overtaken in a trespass at that moment, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, 
considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, obviously, there's a lot packed into that one verse. We want to concentrate this morning on this one word, restore. The word translated restore is one that would be used of setting a broken bone back in place or of mending a torn fishing net. It thus depicts the person as hobbled and unable to continue in the great commission as a fisher of men. You restore the bone and repair the net in order for them to return to a place of serving the Lord. Restoration is one of the main themes in the verses we're covering today, these last verses of 2 Samuel chapter 12. David had sinned, but through the intervention of Nathan the prophet, he had repented. Though he would suffer consequences for his sins, inevitable consequences, we see that he was fully restored by God both at home and in the kingdom. David's restoration doesn't tell us everything we need to know about every situation we might encounter with regards to restoring someone who has sinned. It's not a step-by-step primer. But it establishes a truth we sometimes forget or are hesitant to declare. God loves to fully restore his people. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God restores you and then reveals himself through it in your private life. Number two, God restores you and then reveals himself through it in your public life. Let's take a look at David's private life in verses 24 and 25. As I mentioned, it's not our goal today to establish the precise biblical process for restoring a sinning brother or sister. That process is found in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 22. And if we were in Matthew, that would be our goal. But we're here looking at some part of that process. Now, that process, the Matthew 18 process, most of the time it's referred to as church discipline. It involves confrontation of sin on an escalating scale if the person being confronted refuses to repent. You go alone at first to confront them, but later you take witnesses and much later, if necessary, you expose the person's sin publicly to the gathered church. Most of you are familiar with some outline of that process uh, of church discipline. Now, in passing... I might just point out that the phrase church discipline does not really occur in the Bible. It's what we call that process. I refer to it as church discipline too, but I'm starting to think that it might be better, that it might be more biblical to call it church restoration. It includes discipline. It starts there. But if its goal is to restore, why not call it that to remind us why we're doing it and where we're headed? And so as much as possible, I'd like to start calling uh, Matthew 18 church restoration. What we're focusing on today is what we might call the heart behind that process. It's a vital part of the process. Even in the New Testament passage, in Matthew 18, before uh, Jesus talks about the steps of church restoration, he gives this illustration in the verses just prior to that. He says in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 12, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray... Doesn't he leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep 
than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Then Jesus talks about what to do with a sinning brother. And so you see God's heart is that He wants to go after that person. He wants to find that person as a lost sheep and bring that person back into the fold, bring them back into the flock, bring them back into the church as a full-fledged member of the church. And so restoration is the attitude, it's the heart, it's the motivation we must have throughout the process. And we see it radically illustrated in the restoration of David. Verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. He went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, it's hard for us sometimes, uh, you know, even if we're not Christians, sometimes we're so familiar with these stories, especially the story of David and Bathsheba. It's hard to, to think, how would I really relate to this if I were reading it for the first time and didn't know a lot about the Bible or about God or anything like that. And so I'm reading through and I see David and I see that he commits adultery and then I see that he commits murder to cover up his adultery. And then, uh, sure, he repents. I understand that and then a few verses later he uh, marries Bathsheba and he has another child and he goes on as the king of Israel and I'd have to say to myself really after committing adultery and a murder to cover it up God allowed this really and not only that he would have another child but that that son would be the heir to the throne Uh, it's a little bit mind-blowing when you think about what God does I wonder what steps I would have recommended for David to take in the aftermath of his sins if I had been chairman of the committee charged with his discipline and restoration. And you see, that that's what happens. It's like, you know, people sin. There's no doubt about it. And sometimes they sin at a level where it needs to be dealt with more publicly and, and people get involved and you have to look at it and say, you know, uh, what, what's the potential discipline and what's the process of restoration? It's kind of a silly comparison since we don't live in a monarchy or even really understand the tribal elements of a culture like Israel's. Still, I'm almost sure we would have been more punitive in the aftermath of David's sin. While we might have recommended he marry Bathsheba, I think we would have thought him disqualified from leadership and asked him to step down from being king. We would at least have wanted to wait to see if there was fruit in his life after his repentance. That's kind of a thing that we do. We think, well, you repented. And the Bible says that if you repent, I have to forgive you. So I forgive you, but I don't know if your repentance was real. And so I'm going to wait for fruit. And uh, then you say, well, how long is that going to take? Who knows? I don't know. Some fruit. uh, You know, I know it's not a fruit. It's a vegetable. But you might be an asparagus. Uh, You know, it could take a while for you to come up. Uh, and, and it may not be a season, it may be several seasons. And it's kind of funny, I'm having some fun with it, but I remember a situation I was in with another church. There's a fellow that wanted me to go with him. Uh, he was being disciplined by another church, 
uh, and, and this issue came up. And I asked them, I asked them, I said, I said, you're waiting for him to bring forth the fruits of repentance before, you know, you'll allow him to get back together with his wife because they were separated. I said, what are those fruits? What are you waiting for? And they just said, we'll know them when we see them. Wow. Fruit inspectors uh, of the, you know, <laughs> I don't know. And uh, that marriage didn't work out. Uh, I think they're still waiting for the fruit of repentance. I don't know. So it's a very serious issue. We, you know, Jesus said you should forgive somebody not seven times in a day, but 70 times seven. You don't have a lot of time to wait for the fruit of repentance or to watch because they keep sinning against you. Now, those are extreme cases, and uh, I, but I think we're in a section of Scripture here that where God says, yeah, I want to show you an extreme so that you won't forget how much I want to restore people. Again, I want to emphasize this passage isn't giving me a process for restoration. This isn't establishing the norm for dealing with adulterers and murderers. This isn't that at all. It's just showing the heart of God. It's telling us that God is serious about restoring repentant sinners. He is extreme and radical when it comes to restoration. And I should at least want to be as well. Every restoration opportunity, it's going to be a little bit different. One thing they all must have in common is the goal to see the person restored both to fellowship and to service. You see, we want to mend the broken bone. And if the, body of Christ, if the church is the body of Christ, we want to mend the bone that is broken so that uh, that body can function properly so that that person can be back in fellowship, full fellowship. We never go to a doctor and say, hey, I have a broken ankle. I'd like you to fix it part way because I want to just hobble for the rest of my life because I deserve to have a broken ankle. I want to have a little bit of a break there to remind me of the pain. No, we want, we want A1 service. We want, you know, we want the thing fixed. And it means to mend a net uh, uh, that has a hole in it. And that means we want to put the person back out fishing. We want to restore them to service in a way that honors the Lord so that they will continue serving Him. Now, David's private life his home life is on display in these first two verses, and we see that it was totally restored. Verses 24 and 25 depict a joyous home life that was abundantly blessed by God. They named their son Solomon, which means peace. They were at peace in their home, and they enjoyed peace with God. They didn't name his, their son Bummer. They didn't name him Terrible. They didn't name him Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. They said, this is our son. We're at peace with God. Nathan put God's stamp of approval on David's private life by naming the child Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. So if you're thinking, well, David is just, he's just wishful thinking that everything is all right now. No, God says, I love that kid. And I love what's going on in David's home. By now, all the nation knew that David had committed adultery and murder. All the nation was therefore watching what David would do. And more importantly, what God was going to do. And yes, we're going to get to the consequences of David's sin. There's some things that are going to happen in his life that God said were the result of his sin. 
But that's what's so precious about these verses before we get there. God says, before we go there, I want you to know that I'm not punishing David. He is fully and totally restored to fellowship with me and to his service to me. And these other things have to happen. uh, But, you know, it's not a continuing punishment, as it were. And so people would look at that and they would say, wow, when, when I repent... God restores. The consequences God determines for sin are always different than the punishments we assign to repentant believers to be sure they're not getting off too easy. God's restoration then was first revealed in David's home as a husband and father. He was also the king. And so in verses 26 through 31, God restores you and then reveals himself through it in your public life. Now, at this point, with regards to return to service, there's a wide variety of opinions among evangelical Christians. Since we're looking at David, who was a king, the leader of Israel, we might compare it to the case of a church leader who has sinned, uh, a pastor or an elder. We can go to extremes. On the one hand, when a leader sins, some immediately claim the phrase, touch not God's anointed, or they quote, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. In other words, leaders are somehow untouchable. They get a pass as if they should never be subject to a regular process of restoration that must begin with discipline. And though that sounds strange to all of us, it's very common in uh, evangelical Christian circles that, well, what are you going to do? People sin and, and the, you know, the pastor, the elder, that person is above others. And so we, we don't want to touch God's anointed. Others go to the opposite extreme and they claim the individual is permanently, totally 100% disqualified from any leadership or teaching position for the rest of their life, no matter that they have truly repented. One prominent pastor writes, I'm not advocating that we shoot our wounded, which he is. Uh, I'm simply saying that we shouldn't rush them back to the front lines. We should not put them in charge of other soldiers. The church should do everything possible to minister to those who have sinned and repented, but that does not include restoring the mantle of leadership to a man who has disqualified himself for life and forfeited the right to lead. And so there's extremes, or what I, maybe you don't think those are extremes. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's where I'm at. I hope to show you this morning God's heart. Those are extreme positions because every situation, every case is going to be a little different and will present its own difficulties. I'm not saying that an individual gets right back into a position of leadership. It depends. But I'm not saying that they're disqualified forever either. It's, it's a process. Rather than have our mindset on one extreme or another, we ought to remember that God loves to restore, that He can be extreme in doing so, and then walk through the process with the desire that God would be revealed. Most of the time when we talk about church discipline or what I want to call restoration, we're only interested in the steps and making sure that we we do everything that we have to do in each step so that we can't be held accountable uh, for doing something wrong. And it's too easy to miss the heart, the reason why we're going through them. Now, in David's case, restoration meant he continued as king of Israel and he got right back into the battle. And so we see in verse 26, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon, and he took the royal city. 
And Joab sent messengers to David and he said, I have fought against Rabbah, I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. Joab was King David's courageous and crafty general. He was about to take Rabbah after a long, successful military campaign. Instead of getting the glory, he determined it should go to David. Now, it's not part of our subject matter this morning, but I must commend Joab for not wanting the glory. The glory belonged to God, not to Joab or to David. By allowing David to get the final victory, both men were functioning as God had raised them up to function. Do your part, defer to others, and God will get the glory for what he wants to accomplish uh, through his people. That's the lesson there. Now, back to our subject. If anyone might have balked at David's restoration, it was Joab. So, you know, this is a long campaign. Joab is out there fighting Rabbah. Somehow he gets the memo that God has forgiven and restored David. That there is peace in his house and that David is still the king and all is, you know, going accordingly. Uh, if anybody would have objected to that, it would have been Joab, who had been ordered by David, prior to his repentance, of course, to put Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, in the hottest part of the battle so that that individual would be killed to cover David's adultery. And so if you're Joab and you're thinking, hey, I just, I have no stomach for this. I am not going to honor the man who has done this. But, and I can't tell you what Joab was thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I know what he did. He recognized that David was fully restored in the eyes of God and he treated him as the king of Israel. And he said, look, it's not right that I would get the victory and they would name Rabbah after me. You need to come down now uh, and all. And it's even more interesting because David should have been there from the beginning. When this story started, it said it was the time when kings go to war. And David stayed behind, and that's what contributed to his sin. And so Joab could have had a, 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 just a mouthful of things. I mean, he, you know, he could have retired and written a tell-all. My, you know, David and Bathsheba, my side of the story. And so, but he said, no, you know, if God is going to restore David, then I am going to treat him as a restored individual. And so David, get down here. We don't want to name this Joab land, you know. Although he could have set up like Joab's hut or something like that, you know, and sold coffee for the rest of his life. But anyway, who knows? So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Here's David now on the very site of his sin and he's being credited with a great victory. Don't miss that. God is saying to us this morning, I want to restore as radically as possible. And that needs to be our heart. And so David comes down there. This is where his sin was really fleshed out. The adultery was covered. The murder took place. And, and God says, I want you there. And this is where I'm going to give you the victory. It's mind-boggling. It's, it's God at his best, we might say. I wonder, and this is just uh, total speculation uh, on my part, but I wonder now that David had repented and was walking with the Lord, if he didn't go to Joab privately or maybe even publicly and, te- and ask him to take him to the place where uh, Uriah lost his life. 
so that he could feel the weight and the gravity of, of the forgiveness of God and what God had allowed to take place in his life. It's, I'm just, just thinking that that uh, might be something that could have taken place. If not, everyone knew that it had taken place and that David was in the place of his greatest uh, failure had now become a great victory. Verse 30, Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold. Precious stones were on it, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. Now, depending on the culture, I found out a talent could be anywhere from around 60 pounds to well over 100 pounds. These guys had well-developed neck muscles. I mean, think about it. I don't know, it doesn't say how long he had this crown, but I would need guys to carry the crown around as I was walking. I mean, this is a huge 60-pound cover that he has on him. Uh, But here he is wearing the enemy's crown. He took their spoil. It's a scene of total and complete victory that emphasized total and complete restoration. And it's made more complete in verse 31. He brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now there's a dispute among Bible scholars regarding the proper translation of the verb put them to work. Some say it really means he put them under the saws and iron picks and iron axes. In other words, David slaughtered them with these uh, common uh, uh, items. That's possible. It sounds cruel to us, but that's the way things were handled in those days. That was the aftermath of war. If David did put them under the saws and all, it was probably the soldiers who suffered that fate and not the general population. Either way, it's interesting to our subject matter that now that David was restored, he acted fully like the king he was. He wasn't soft on the enemies of God. Restoration hadn't weakened his resolve to bring glory to God. And we've been talking about the attitude those who are spiritual should have with regard to restoration. The person being restored needs to have attitude as well. Once you are restored, then you're back where God wants you to be and you ought to act accordingly. I'm not saying that it hasn't affected you, that it hasn't humbled you, that it hasn't made you a different person. But with regard to serving the Lord, you're no no second class individual. You make no apology for being a child of God. And, you know, I think this hits home a little bit because over the years I've known so many people who have sinned, you know, and and their sin has become public in the life of a church. And they never, it's not always the church. I mean, sometimes you can blame the people in the church. You can think they're thinking things about you when they're not. Sometimes they are, sadly. But a lot of times you just feel like, well, I'm, I'm second class. I did this and I'll never fully recover from this. No, that's not true. You may have consequences, Some sins bring consequences. Well, all sin has consequences, some worse than others. But God says, man, if you're restored, then you're restored and you're to serve me as if it never happened. And you're to be bold in serving me. And there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. And David is a great example of that. From the moment he repented, he started acting like a husband and a father and a king. All of it revealed 
the grace and mercy of God giving hope to sinners that God can and will restore. You know, it doesn't really give hope to people when they see you and they think, well, God only is going to restore part way. I'm going to have this stigma for the rest of my life. Once, you know, God gives you one chance, one chance only, and that's it. There are people like that. A lot of people like that. Once you cross them, that's it. You know, what's that phrase? I always get things wrong that aren't in my notes, so you might need to help me. But, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you. That's it. Fool me twice, shame on me. And so some people are very magnanimous. They'll go twice with you. When Jesus said, how about seven times in a day? No, how about 70 times seven in a day? I know that there are Christians who feel second rate, second class, put down because of their sin. Over the years, the 25 years we've been here, people have sinned. And some of them won't come back to church even after they've repented and been restored because they they want a fresh start. It's so sad to me that you would have to have a fresh start in a place of ignorance rather than a place of knowledge because you don't feel as though God can be glorified in your restoration. And, And, you know, I think it's sad from a biblical point of view. We need to have God's attitude, God's heart towards sinners and see this through all the way to restoration. Pastor John MacArthur writes and he says, what do you do when someone sins? You discipline them. What do you do when they repent and turn from their sin? You forgive them in the fullest sense. Then what do you do after they are forgiven? You restore them. You take them all the way back to the place where they were before they fell in the beginning And the ministry of restoration seems to me to be a vital and final link in the process of our thinking. Now, admittedly, this restoration stuff is hard. On the one hand, we can restore a person almost before they have repented. We do this anytime we ignore sin in their lives or when we have a tendency to minimize their sin. The other hand in this is the heavy hand of punishment and penance. We can require a person to jump through hoops in order to prove that they have truly repented. We seem unable to apply forgiveness even though it's been asked for and even though Jesus said we should forgive and therefore restore 70 times 7 in a day, a single day, if necessary. It's not easy. Now, it's also popular, I was thinking about this uh, this morning, it's popular among Christians, I've heard this talk to criticize the church, not necessarily our church. When I say the church, I just mean the church in general. They criticize the church because they don't see much church discipline going on. And whenever you hear somebody say that, they mean they don't see the pastor or the board of elders getting up on a Sunday morning excommunicating people. They just don't see it. And so, you know, we'd have the worship and then the prophecy update and then the announcements and then the elders would come out and read the list of excommunicated people for that week, you know. Uh, and then we'd get on with the Bible study. But it sounds, you know, I'm being a little bit facetious, but people say, they say, well, how come the church never disciplines anybody anymore? Well, think about it. And by the way, this is a good thing. Don't receive criticism against the church until you really discern what's being said, because the church is who? The bride of Jesus Christ. You wouldn't receive criticism against your fiancé, would you? If somebody came up to you, you're excited about getting married, and say, hey, your fiancé, she's ugly. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know that, but, you know, we're in love, and, you know, thanks for your opinion. 
Those are fighting words, you know. So, and yet, you know, we, people are, oh, the church, the church, the church. It's, um, every other article on the internet starts with a criticism about the church. The church is failing here, the church is failing there. You're failing in writing the article about the church failing, so there. But the point is, when you hear this, think about it. At, if you look at the process of church discipline, church restoration in Matthew 18, it's supposed to take place in private as privately as possible. It might rise to the level of a public rebuke when all absolutely required and necessary. But 75%, 90% of it is to, supposed to take place in private and bring restoration. And I can promise you that restoration is going on all the time in Christian communities. As friends minister one to another, pointing out sin and dealing with sin. As elders go to different people when we hear that they're sinning and stuff like that. And things are being taken care of that don't rise to a public level. What about things that do rise to a public level? Well, there's two schools of thought on this. Normally, by the time you're anywhere near getting up in front of the church and declaring what the person's sin is, they've already left that fellowship. They've already walked away from the Lord and everybody they affect already knows that. And so it would be redundant to get up and tell everybody who already knows what's happened what's happened and tell strangers what has happened who don't need to know and aren't being affected. Now, that's just my take on it. Others feel differently. They think you have to go through the process. You, you have to have it in your minutes that this person who's been gone for six months, everybody knows they committed sin. They're not even walking with the Lord, but we're going to make sure that we nail that down because of, of the, the process and stuff. And so I submit to you that restoration is going on all the time. It just rarely rises to the level uh, in which you would have to say something publicly. You know, years ago we had a situation where we did have to say some things publicly about it. Uh, and um, it was very powerful, very moving. Uh, what we, the way we handled it, we, we, we dismissed people and said, hey, if you're interested in this, we laid out kind of the scenario. We said, after second service, then stick around and we'll bring you up to date. And we were very, very, very humble about it. And so it happens. But it's very rare, not because we don't want to do it, but because we don't have to do it because we're doing it on another level. Now, we should always apply the process of discipline as a restorative, as a remedial, not as a punishment, always having in mind the winning back of the sinning brother or sister, both to fellowship and to service. We want to see that person back in the battle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. And Lord, just as we close in prayer... I want to pray for those who are here uh, who may feel, Lord, as though they'll never rise to the level of really being able to serve you again. They've sinned in some way, Lord, whether people know about it or not, and there's a guilt uh, upon them, there's a crushing burden upon them. Lord, I pray that they would see that you are radical in your forgiveness and therefore radical in your restoration, and that they would put that behind them once and for all. Sure, Lord, there were consequences of their sin, maybe continuing consequences even today. But that's a very different thing from their relationship with you and their ability to serve you 
You have set their broken bone. You have mended their net in the sense of wanting them to serve. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are spiritual at those moments. We're not the ones that are sinning. That we would have a desire at least to radically restore. And Lord, that we would move through these processes in a way that shares that desire so that people can see your heart. These situations are tough, Lord. We're dealing with the human heart. We're waiting upon you for prayer and all. Uh, We don't want to move too fast, but we don't want to move too slow either. We want to do what you want us to do. And Lord, if you could raise back up David and make him a husband and a father to Bathsheba and Solomon, if you could, Lord, put him again as the king of Israel, then what can't you do with us, Lord? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.